Okay, this is a bit different. I wish I was looking out and seeing you in the pews. That would be so much better than this. But I'm going to try to be authentic here in front of a camera and this bizarre mic in front of me. So anyway, we'll, we'll make this work. But thank you for, for tuning in. Let's say that you're in Central Park uh, in New York City. And while taking a leisurely walk, you, you sit on a park bench to rest. And unexpectedly, this cute uh, little little blonde-haired chap, around six years old, uh, plops down beside you on the park bench and warmly greets you, how do you do? And immediately you're amused, uh, uh, especially because of his charming English accent. As you're wondering where his parents are, he's busy talking. Who's your favorite superhero? I like Union Jack. Have you heard of the coronavirus? Are you scared at all? I like masala tea. Have you ever tried masala tea? I've had it with buffalo milk. Uh, it might sound dreadful, but it's actually quite scrummy. Do you like bangers and mash? I do. It's my favorite. I, I looked at the Wall Street Journal this morning, and, and, and then he asks, do you have debt? And quickly adds, I don't think I do. And before you can respond, he adds, I like you. I want to give you some money. And you laugh and he giggles. This kid's hilarious. And, and, and then you're startled. Is that who I think it is? Could be. Yes, Prince William and Kate Middleton are anxiously approaching you and the lad. And upon arriving, William and Kate scold the little chap for running off and, and politely thank you for conversing with him for a little while. And as you sit there stunned that you're actually talking to royalty, the little lad's comment about money crosses your mind. Uh, considering this little little lad is among the richest kids in the world. Um, will he bring it up again? Uh, it would be impolite for you to bring it up again. And so you hope he brings it up again or that William and Kate overheard it and want to give you a, maybe a finder's fee for their boy or something like that. So what's my point? He was a cute little boy amusing you on a sunny afternoon until you realized who he was. His true identity gave the debt and money comments new meaning. Consider all six petitions of the Lord's Prayer. One, hallowed be your name. Two, your kingdom come. Three, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Four, give us this day our daily bread. Five, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And six, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Those are big and bold requests. Your confidence in those requests being granted depends on how you perceive and know God. Do you perceive God as your ruthless judge, viciously throwing the book at you to make you feel guilty? Well, if so, you won't be confident in his fatherly love and provision for you. Do you perceive God as less than almighty and sovereign, just standing there wringing his hands nervously as things happen that he can't stop? If so, you will have little confidence in his ability to help you, to provide for you. Do you perceive God as, as distant or detached or even disinterested? If so, you won't, you won't want to pest or bother God 
with your request, nor will you really believe that he's listening to you anyway. Do you perceive God as all mercy and grace and no law and justice? If so, you won't take your sin very seriously, nor really ask God much for forgiveness, nor really ask God to deliver you from evil. You'll be content with your indwelling sin and lack of godliness and growth. Do you perceive God as all law and justice and no mercy and grace? If so, you will have a hard time believing you can be forgiven, that God actually loves and provides for you. Your, your guilt will feel heavy. You'll feel so defeated and gloomy without much hope in God delivering you from evil. And you see how important it is for us to have an accurate view of God. Uh, years ago, Christine and I went to a Roman Catholic wedding. And during the wedding liturgy, they said the Lord's Prayer. Well, we, we join right in. And then they all stopped short, and Christine and I boldly kept on going, for thine is the kingdom. And, the, and, and then we just kind of trailed off. It's kind of embarrassing when you're the only ones blasting out the conclusion of the prayer. But you'll notice that the ESV and other English translations do not include the phrase, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Yet we say it, and the Heidelberg includes it, and other Reformed catechisms include it. Christians have recited this conclusion or doxology for centuries. So what's the deal? Why is this statement missing from some of our modern translations? Well, it's been debated for many years, but I think that it's generally accepted today among scholars that the doxology at the end of the Lord's Prayer is not original to Matthew's text, uh, nor does Luke include it in his version of the Lord's Prayer. It's missing from the earliest New Testament manuscripts. Uh, it is found in texts after the 5th century, um, most from the 9th century. Early patristic commentaries are void of it. What muddies the water, though, and suggests that it might actually be original to Matthew's text is that um, an abbreviated form of this doxology is found in the Didache from around the early 2nd century. The Didache was essentially an early Christian book of moral instructions and church liturgy. It was not viewed as scripture, uh, but it did have some level of authority in the early church. I'm certainly not sure, nor will I solve the issue, but let me say a little bit about it. D.A. Carson, who is a thorough and esteemed Bible scholar, noted, quote, the manuscript evidence is overwhelmingly in favor of omission, end of quote. Craig Blomberg, another notable scholar, said, quote, this well-known conclusion appears in the NIV margin, but almost certainly did not appear in Matthew's original text, end of quote. So the doxology was likely a later scribal edition. Either way, it's interesting that the phrase seems to be drawn from 1 Chronicles 29.11. Listen closely. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom 
O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Isn't that strikingly similar? Uh, whether the conclusion is original to Matthew or not, it is a biblical doxology. Jewish prayers concluded with doxologies. Might we assume that when Jesus taught the Lord's Prayer, he concluded with a doxology? Uh, church historian Dr. R. Scott Clark says this, There is certainly nothing wrong with a biblical doxology, and it is perfectly appropriate to pray it, but knowing that it was a later edition helps to understand the variation in practice. Its omission is not a sign of theological or biblical infidelity. End of quote. So either way, we can pray it with a clear conscience. Remember, Jesus said, pray then like this. So more than exact words, Jesus was giving the Lord's Prayer as a prayer outline or a guide. And though the concluding doxology is likely not original to Matthew's text, uh, it no doubt complements the substance of the Lord's Prayer. Its inclusion in the Didache and the historic catechisms and commentaries is worth considering. G.I. Williamson added this, There is nothing in this concluding summation that is contrary to the sense and meaning of the prayer itself or to the rest of the Bible. In fact, the very content of the prayer itself implies what is contained in this conclusion, end of quote. The phrase, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, amen, is what the Lord's prayer rests on. So it fits theologically and contextually, even though I conclude it was not original to Matthew. Now I'm going to preach this uh, phrase this morning as an appropriate and historical doxological conclusion to the Lord's Prayer. So this is more of a topical sermon highlighting central biblical truths which confirm everything in the Lord's Prayer. So here are four clear and biblical truths which confirm everything we pray in the Lord's Prayer. Uh, each bolsters our faith and confidence that our Father hears us and will respond to us. And so we pray the Lord's Prayer because, number one, God is king now and forever. Number two, God is omnipotent now and forever. Number three, God is worthy of all glory now and forever. And four, the Lord's prayer is true now and forever. And might each of, of these uh, petitions or, or points rather, each of these points comfort us in light of the global outbreak of the coronavirus. All right, number one, we pray the Lord's prayer because God is king now and forever. The word for in the doxology of the Lord's prayer explains the rationale for the Lord's prayer. How can we expect God to hear and respond to our petitions? For or because thine is the glory and the power. I'm sorry, thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Each petition is justified by the truth of God's eternal kingdom, power, and glory. And if we affirm that kingdom, power, and glory, that they belong to our Father alone, we will pray each petition sincerely and urgently. 1 Timothy 1.17 is a similar doxology. To the king of ages, 
immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Our Father is the King of the ages. When has our Father not been Almighty King? Later in 1 Timothy 6, 15 and 16, Paul says, He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. There, there is an inseparable connection between who God is as Almighty King and how Jesus taught us to pray. The prophet Jeremiah proclaimed to Israel, but the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. Our Father is a living King, an immortal King, an invisible King, a blessed King, a sovereign King, an everlasting King. Our Father is the King of Kings. His kingdom is now and forever. And he has graciously brought us out of the kingdom of darkness and into his kingdom of light in order to hear and respond to our sincere and urgent prayers. Brothers and sisters, consider Psalm 47. Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves, Selah. God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises to our king, sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. Saints, when you pray the Lord's Prayer, are you aware that the King of Kings loves you, is listening to you, and is responding to you for Christ's sake. Psalm 29, 10 and 11 is true for you, dear saints. It says, the Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. Why ask our father to hallow his name? Because he's king of kings and, and we want his name to be honored in all the earth. Why ask our father to bring his kingdom? Because the kingdom of this world is broken and we want our father's mighty kingdom to come bringing restoration and healing. The coronavirus is for a limited time. God's kingdom is now and forever. Why ask our father to accomplish his will? Because as king, our father can conquer our rebel will and conform it to his will, for his will alone is good. And our father will help us do his will, even when quarantined in our homes on the Lord's day. Why ask our father to meet our daily needs? Because as king, our father can meet our daily needs. And he does. Are you not living beneath 
his preeminence, protection, provision, and preservation? Is he not caring for you even now? Who, who can separate us from our Father's love and provision? Why ask our Father to forgive us our debts? Because as Matthew Henry said, God gives and saves like a king. We are indebted to the king. So who but the king can cancel our debt? Our father, the king, is uh, rich in righteousness and provides us the righteousness of Christ the king in order that we would become righteous, rich in righteousness, in fact, heirs of the kingdom of righteousness. Why ask our father to deliver us from evil? Because our father, the king, reigns and rules supreme over evil and sovereignly uses evil to work for our ultimate good and salvation. Our father has the regal power and ability to rescue us from our enemies of the flesh, the world, and the devil. Is our father, the king, not acting on our behalf right now? For thine is the kingdom. Number two, we pray the Lord's Prayer because God is omnipotent now and forever. For thine is the power. Omnipotent is a compound word. Omni means all and potent means power. Omnipotent or all-powerful or almighty. When we say that God is omnipotent or almighty, we are acknowledging that our Father possesses absolute and unsurpassed power. Uh, little kids, they grow up thinking that their dads can do anything, that their father is so strong and so powerful, they sometimes probably assume he's the most powerful man ever, but no kid can say that their dad is all-powerful. Plus, regular dads just end up losing all of their hair and pulling muscles when they get up from the couch. So um, our Heavenly Father possesses utmost power. Now, it is completely absurd when professing Christians say things like, God's sovereignty doesn't mean he controls everything. Or, God is not in control and that's good news. Or what Bill Johnson preached one time, quote, we know that God is all powerful. We know that he is in charge of everything. But with that, we make a mistake in thinking he is in control of everything. End of quote. That's absurd. Johnson is talking out of both sides of his mouth. The Bible doesn't allow us to separate God's sovereignty from his omnipotence, from his being in charge, from his being in control. They, they are all inseparable, and we could say in some ways synonymous. Let's define some terms as we think this through, and I think this will help us. Let's define these words. Power, sovereign, efficacious, dominion, authority, and control. And I want you to listen for the strong relationship between these words, all of these words. Power is God's divine force, his might, his strength, his 
ability to achieve all that he desires. Psalm 147 verse 5 says, Great is our Lord and abundant in power. He spoke the universe into existence and holds it together by the word of his sheer and unrivaled power. He saves by his absolute power. For Paul said, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Sovereign. The first definition of sovereign in Webster's 1828 uh, dictionary, great resource online that you can get for free, uh, is this. Supreme in power, possessing supreme dominion as a sovereign ruler of the universe. Scripture teaches that God is sovereign. Webster's second definition mentions being supreme or superior to all others, and God certainly is supreme and superior, but Webster's third definition uses the word efficacious. Efficacious is God's power or ability to produce uh, his intended effect or end. In other words, God always gets it done. Uh, God has the supreme power to bring about all that he purposes. Remember Job's prayer. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Psalm 33 verse 11 says, The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. Webster's definition of sovereign included supreme in power, but also supreme dominion. Psalm 145 verse 13 says, your dominion endures throughout all generations. Dominion, according to Webster, is sovereign or supreme authority. Authority is God's supremacy and governance over all things and his divine right to act as he pleases. Uh, Psalm 135 or 6 says, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth. The second part of Webster's first definition of dominion is the power of governing and controlling. Interesting. Uh, God's divine and absolute dominion includes, by definition, God's control. Um, uh, his, his divine and absolute governance and control of all things. Saints, control cannot be detached from God's power, sovereignty, efficaciousness, dominion, and authority. So when we say that God is in control, we're saying that God possesses supreme power, authority, command of all things. He does all that he pleases. All things are subject to his omnipotence and sovereign will and purposes. Isn't it interesting that the author of Hebrews mentions everything being uh, put in subjection to Jesus Christ and adds, now in putting in sub everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. 
meaning nothing is not subject to Christ. Nothing is not controlled by Christ. Now, this doesn't mean personal responsibility or culpability is invalidated. God is not a computer programmer controlling robots on the earth. Uh, that's clear in scripture, absolutely. But it does mean that God is working all things according to the counsel of his divine and omnipotent will. We need to be reminded of that in the midst of this whole corona scare. So when we say that God is omnipotent, we are referring to his power, sovereignty, efficaciousness, dominion, authority, and control. And his omnipotence is what infuses the Lord's prayer with hope. God is omnipotent, and therefore our God, our Father, is able. Jude 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. God revealed himself to Abraham saying, Ani el Shaddai, I am God Almighty. Do you realize the inseparable connection between God's omnipotence, the Lord's prayer, and our confidence and comfort when we pray the Lord's prayer? We ask our Father to hallow his name, bring his kingdom, accomplish his will, meet our daily needs, forgive us our debts, and deliver us from evil. If our Father is not omnipotent, and able to respond to this, why are we praying that? Saints, our Father is omnipotent, almighty, and invincible, and nothing will ever separate us from his love or stop him from giving us all that we need to persevere to the end in fulfillment of his covenant promise, I will be your God and you will be my people. It is our father's omnipotence which secures our assurance in our father's promises. Now, I like hip hop. I love hip hop. The rapper Odd Thomas from Beautiful Eulogy spits these bars for our, uh, us to consider. Nothing can compare to the worth of what we inherited. Nothing in heaven and earth can measure what Christ merited. The skies declare the affairs of his glorious care. The God who is there, who's aware, who delights in our prayer. His purposes are permanent and perfectly proportionate. Everything that orbits around his glory is subordinate. He is the most excellent one, intrinsic, infinite, son, preeminent, the name par excellence, Prenom phenomenon. Beloved children of God, our Father's purposes are permanent because He's omnipotent. Everything that orbits around His glory is subordinate because He's omnipotent. His omnipotence is part of His excellence, and so all the glory belongs to our Father, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Number three, 
We pray the Lord's Prayer because God is worthy of all glory now and forever. To say, for thine is the glory, is to acknowledge that our Father deserves all the glory and to ascribe all the glory to him. Can we comprehend the extent of his glory? Um, The extent of his beauty, his majesty, his worth, his excellence, his grandeur? Can we glorify him as he deserves? No. Uh, But we know all glory belongs to him, and by his grace and his spirit, we do ascribe glory to him. Why? Our Father is worthy. He's deserving. Who else is deserving of glory? Our Father has intrinsic glory, making him deserving of all glory. God's being, his merits, his works, his acts are so stunning and impressive that to give glory to anything else would be gross idolatry. Psalm 24 calls the Lord the King of glory. In the New Testament, you hear a common refrain, to him be glory. Nothing else in all of creation is worthy. Consider the first three petitions. Why ask our Father to hallow his name, to bring his kingdom, to accomplish his will? Because as the Apostle Peter wrote, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Consider the the last three petitions. Why ask our Father to meet our daily needs, to forgive us our debts, to deliver us from evil? Listen to what Paul told the Philippian church in Philippians 4, 19 and 20. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Our Father is worthy of all glory because he alone supplies our every need according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Saints, we as human beings are glory thieves. Our natural instinct is to ascribe glory to ourselves. We even do this in our view of our own salvation. God's absolute sovereignty in our salvation does not allow us to give ourselves any credit whatsoever. Any theological framework that ascribes even a hint of glory to human will or exertion is leading people away from God, not nearer to him. For God could not have been any clearer When he said through Paul in Romans 9, 16, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Our salvation is entirely God's mercy and grace. So all glory goes to him for achieving it. God alone is worthy of all glory, for all glory resides in him, and our salvation from beginning to end derives entirely from him. And this is why the great multitude of Revelation 19 verse 1 cries out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. 
And if you think that God's sovereignty and glory and salvation is simply something for Calvinists and Arminians to argue about, you're missing the deep comfort of the point. Consider God's sovereignty and salvation as it relates to the last petition of the Lord's Prayer. If any glory rightly belongs to anything else, even human will, even just a little bit, how will we be delivered from evil which overwhelms and controls us apart from God's omnipotent and conquering grace? Strip God of his absolute sovereignty and free omnipotence by ascribing any glory anywhere else, however small the percentage may be, and how is God going to deliver us from evil? For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever substantiates everything in the Lord's Prayer. Your sinus is brilliant on this. He wrote, quote, we ask these things for your glory. We desire and look for all good things from you, the only true and sovereign God. We profess and acknowledge you as the author and fountain of all good things. And because this glory is due you, we therefore desire these things from you. Therefore, hear us for your good glory, for this petition and expectation of all good things from you is nothing else than an ascription of honor and glory to you. Hear us especially since you will grant us the things which we desire. You will do what contributes to your glory. What we desire and pray for contributes to your glory. Therefore, you will grant it unto us. Give us, therefore, what we pray for, and the glory shall redound to you if you deliver us. For so shall your kingdom, power, and glory be manifested. End of quote. That's, that's profound. We plead the six requests of the Lord's prayer. Our Father hears us. Our Father answers us. And all glory goes to him. Why do we pray this doxology? Because it's all true. Number four, we pray the Lord's prayer because it is true now and forever. Sometimes my kids doubt when they ask me for certain things. Daddy can we watch a movie? Daddy, can we have another piece of candy? But I don't know that my kids ever ask me, Daddy, may we live in your house? Or, or Daddy, would you give us some food today? They are certain of my love for them, so they are certain about my provision of good for them. Heidelberg 129 asks, what does the word amen mean? Amen is not just a throwaway word to tell everyone that the, that the uh, prayer is finished and, and done and we can all open our eyes now. That, that's not what the word is. Heidelberg 129 says amen means it is true and certain. For God has much more certainly heard my prayer than I feel in my heart that I desire this of him. So amen is a word of faith. 
when you say amen, you are believing that God heard your petitions. And I love that the Heidelberg says, for God has much more certainly heard my prayer than I feel in my heart that I desire this of him. Our feelings are corrupted by sin and we don't always feel what is true. In our weakness and uncertainty and insecurity and anxiety, we are prone to feel insecure about God hearing us. But when we pray amen, we are affirming that our Father does hear us regardless of how we feel at that particular moment. We, we want him to hear us and respond. Amen is our affirmation, our, our belief that he does hear us and respond regardless of how we might feel at that moment. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says that this conclusion teaches us to take our encouragement in prayer from God only and in our prayers to praise him, ascribing kingdom, power, and glory to him. And in testimony of our desire and assurance to be heard, we say amen, end of quote. Amen voices our desire for God to hear us and our confidence that he does indeed hear us. Um, why ask, kind of at the end of, of the Lord's Prayer series here, why ask all of these big and bold requests of God who is so much greater and above us? Well, I'll let your sinus drop what I'm calling a comfort bomb. I'm going to let him drop the comfort bomb on us so that we're all comforted. Here's what he says. We do not use arguments that we may move and influence God or persuade him to do as we ask, to do what we ask rather, but that we ourselves may be persuaded that God will do this. We're, we're uttering these things for us because we need to give voice and be reminded to these things. It's not like we're moving God to this. He, he, he is sovereign. But we are persuading ourselves that what we're praying, that God is responding, that he is acting. And your sinus added this. You are the best king. Therefore, you will give to your subjects what is necessary and tends to their salvation. You are most powerful. Therefore, you will show your power in giving these greatest of all gifts, which can be given by no one beside you. It shall contribute to thy glory. Therefore, you will do it because you have a regard to your glory. Did you catch that last part? There, there is your comfort. There is your assurance. Why will your father answer your requests? Because as you ask for that which promotes his glory, he answers your prayers because he has regard for his own glory. Of course, he loves us. Of course, he's, he's thinking about us, but only because he has regard for his own glory. So you can pray the Lord's Prayer with confidence because God says, 
for mine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. The Lord's prayer will be an increasing comfort for you more and more. The better you know the one to whom you pray.